are in part two of our sermon series called The Secret to Life. And um, I'm just going to start off by reading the passage of Scripture that we're exploring these, uh, for this series. Uh, Jordan is going to wrap us up next week. But 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, where he says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Verse 18, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Verse 19, in this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. The principle we're exploring is the idea that a disciple doesn't just attend, a disciple engages. We're not here to occupy a seat. We don't need people to keep these seats warm. That's not what we're here for. We're here to learn, to be inspired, to encourage one another to do what God is calling us to do. And that's what we're here for. Uh, We'd love to fill up the seats. That's wonderful. But only if that's a reflection of what what we're driving people out in the streets to do. And so seats are great. But unless that's translating, unless the work that we're doing here is translating into activity, then it's just kind of, you know, we're just kind of spinning our wheels. And we don't want to do that because we know that that's not where significance in life comes from. I don't know if you've ever had some kind of technology problem you couldn't solve, and I know as technology just kind of like advances rapidly, it feels like we're constantly on the verge of not being able to figure out the newest thing. It was programming the VCR, and now, you know, who's even heard of DVDs anymore? But if you've ever had a a technology problem you couldn't solve and you couldn't find someone uh, who was born after the year 2000 to solve it for you, you're just trying to figure out, like, why won't this thing work? Why won't it work? And you Google, uh, you know, that thing, how to fix this thing, and you can't figure it out. And you, you know, you call your buddy. He doesn't know either because his doesn't work. And finally, finally, I suppose if you're a guy, maybe this is a stereotype, but finally you call tech support for the company. And you get on the phone with them and you press all the different numbers you need to press to finally get to talk to a live person. Come on, I don't want to talk to a robot. I want to talk to a real human being. And you explain the problem to them. And they start off by asking you the most insulting question imaginable. And what they say is, is they say something along along the lines of, is it plugged in? And you're like, are you kidding me? Is it plugged in? Do you think I've spent the last five hours just like, I haven't checked if it's plugged in? Okay, fine. If you need me to have a visual confirmation and you walk over there and you see that it is in fact not plugged in. And you politely say, "Uh, excuse me, I think I figured it out. And you let them go and you're on your way. I don't know. Has that ever happened to you? Me either. It It doesn't happen to me either. But sometimes it feels like when you have a big, complex, difficult problem, it requires a big, complex, difficult solution. It can't just be as simple as it's not plugged in. It's got to be something more difficult than that. It's got to be something that's, that's hard to solve. And, and we're exploring a complex philosophical question in this series, and it feels like in order to explore that, we have to have a complex philosophical answer to this question. And the question that we're exploring is, is something along the lines, and this passage talks about the life that is truly life. We're exploring the idea of what does it mean to have a life of significance? 
What does it mean to have a life of significance? If you've ever felt like maybe you were spinning your wheels in your career, or if you weren't as far along by whatever benchmark society has set for you, if you've ever felt like maybe I'm not doing what I need to be doing, maybe I'm not, I'm not doing something that is meaningful and fulfilling, if you've ever wondered about that, you're asking a philosophical question about life. Like, what is the point of life? What is the purpose of life? What does it mean to matter? What does it mean to be significant? What does it mean to take hold of life that is truly life? And it feels feels like a question like that requires a deep, philosophical, complex answer. To answer the question of what is significance in life? What does it mean to matter in life? Surely it requires some sort of philosophical answer. It's like George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life, you know, didn't feel like his life had meaning and so he got a glimpse of what the town would be like without him. But does my life matter? What would my life, what would my family, what would my job, what would my career path look like if I actually weren't here? Am I significant? Do I matter? Does, it, does what I do matter? Does how I behave matter? And I think Paul in this First Timothy text walks us through this issue. He asks us this question. We want to take hold of life that is truly life. And he says, don't put your hope in riches. And I know we know that as good church people. We understand it's not about riches. But we do tend to get caught up in what we think wealth will give us access to. We think wealth, whether we think of it this way or not, will give us access to, to meaning. If we could travel and if we could save and if we could you know, be generous, we think wealth will give us access to meaning. And Paul says it, it won't. It will not. That's not how you take hold of life that is truly life. You do not put your hope in riches. So how do we find significance? That's a big question. So what is the big answer to the big problem? I mean, it can't be as simple as did you plug it in, right? What's this? It can't be the spiritual equivalent of whatever that is. So we're going to explore a familiar scripture just for a little bit this morning, and it's going to seem like a simple answer, and it's going to seem like I'm tech support saying, did you really plug it in? And you're going to be like, of course I've thought about that, of course that, it's got to be something more than that. But I want to challenge us this morning to realize that maybe the answer to significant life is not any more than what we're going to be talking about this morning. It's not any deeper, it's not any further, it's just that we haven't done what we have been asked to do to find purpose and meaning and significance in life. Matthew chapter 20 starting in verse 25 and verse 26. Jesus called them together. Them, of course, is his followers, his disciples. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. It's all about power and consolidating power and getting people to do what you want them to do. Verse 26, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Hmm. So we think, when we, when we, we're not thinking about this passage, but we think, like, if I want to matter, if I want to be great, I have to have power. I have to be in a position of authority. I have to get a promotion that gives me more money or more power to, to be able to direct the things around me, to be able to arrange my life the way I want. If I want to be great, I have to achieve. I have to get straight A's. That's what it takes to be great. There, ha- there has to be something that I-, I am doing. If I want to be great, I have to do great things. But according to Jesus, and this is so important, and this is one of those things where if you're like tuning out, I just don't really, really want to listen to Patrick today, just tune in for this little bit, and then you can tune out and do whatever you want because this is so valuable. I think this is the answer to this question that we just haven't given uh, much thought to. This is what Jesus says. Significance in life will not come from what we achieve. It will not come from what we achieve. It will come from who we serve. Significance in life will not come from what we achieve. It will come from who we serve. It's such a simple truth. It feels like tech support saying, did you plug it in? That can't be it. It can't be about serving other people. That can't be the whole thing. Come on, there's got to be more than that. 
And Jesus says, listen, if you want to be great, here's how you achieve greatness, by being a servant. And so let's wrap our minds around this idea that significance is serving. Significance is serving. It's just such a, I don't think we can distill it down to anything more than that. This significance is serving. If you're laying in bed at night and you're thinking, does my life matter? You should be asking yourself, am I serving anyone? If you're laying in bed at night thinking like, is my career getting me down the path that I want to get? You should instead be asking yourself, am I serving anyone? Significance is serving. Now realize, I get this is going to feel too simplistic because I wonder if the radicalness of what Jesus is saying in this passage just hasn't taken root. It can't be that simple. It can't be that. Now, I'm not saying it's easy, but it can't be that direct. Just to serve people, that's where I get significance in life is by serving others. That can't be right. Well, I I want to talk about two reasons why I think that this doesn't take root in our lives the way it should, the way Jesus would want it to. I'm uh, sure you've all had an experience of trying to get help from an unhelpful employee in a store. Have you ever had that? Um, Where you just are like, I know my wife went into a big box retailer, I won't tell you which one, Walmart, and she went up to an employee, and the employee looked at her, made eye contact with her, and then turned and ran away, ran away. Now, she didn't know what she had done. She didn't know, like, was this what was going on here? But, and maybe it was just a guy wearing a blue vest trying to freak people out in the store. I don't know. But just like, what, what, what is this? I was talking to another friend this week, and they said they had gone into another big box retailer, not Walmart. I just don't want to call them out. Home Depot. And uh, I guess I will. And uh, had gone to the store and said I, they couldn't find the glue. They were looking for like a special kind of glue. And the employee said, and I quote, they were standing in the middle of the store, at the front of the store. The employee said, it's either over there or it's over there. And then left. Oh, super, super helpful. Yes, I, oh, it's great. Okay, you've given me more options than I had, you know. Technically, they're right. It is either over there or over there. This happened to, to my wife and I not too long ago. We were in a restaurant. It was about 30 minutes before it was closing. And I don't know if you've ever gotten the vibe where it's just been a slow night for them. And uh, they decided to just kind of wrap things up, clean the grill, do all the stuff. They just decided, they, they took a risk. It was a gamble. And they decided we're just going to do all that early. And they see you coming in. And it is just clear, the facial expressions, the body language. They are not interested in you showing up into their establishment. And you walk in, and it's still 30 minutes. I mean, come on, they can help us for 30 minutes. And they're passive-aggressive, and they, like, uh, you know, well, we don't have water. We don't have ice. One place said, we don't have ice. Like, how did you not, did you, this is Minnesota. Like, just go outside and scoop some snow. We don't have ice. But this didn't want us there. It was kind of, they were in shutdown mode. And what what had happened is we'd reached the limit of what they were willing to do, of what those employees were willing to do. We'd reached the absolute limit. I will do whatever you want except for that. Significance is service. However, we want to serve on our own terms. We want to serve to a point. We want to serve to a limit. I will serve, but only this way. I will serve, but only this far. I would do anything for God to quote meatloaf, but I won't do that. I'll serve, 
but not in that way. Matthew chapter 20, verse 26, the word servant in there is fascinating. So fascinating. I didn't, I, this is the first time I had heard this before. And looking it up, I'm like, wow, this is amazing. The word serve is a combo of two words. And the two words, one is thoroughly, like thoroughly, completely. And the other one is dirt or dust. A servant is someone who is thoroughly dirty. Isn't that good? Oh, I see. A servant is one, or maybe another way of it is a servant is someone who's so active, they're just stirring up dust around them. They're working. They're doing. A servant is thoroughly dirty. And I think a lot of us were like, well, I'm willing to serve, but I'm not willing to get my hands dirty doing that. I'm willing to serve, but here's my limits. I'm willing to serve, but here's my terms and conditions. But a servant is thoroughly dirty. Richard Foster wrote in a book called The Celebration of Disciplines. It's a great book. You should read it. But he wrote, we must see the difference between choosing to serve and choosing to be a servant. Choosing to serve I'm still on the top of the totem pole. I'm still at the top of the pecking order. I'm still the one in charge. I'm still the one in control. I'm still going to do what I want to do in the way that I want to do it. Choosing to be a servant is stepping into an identity like Christ and saying, not my will, but yours be done. Choosing to be a servant. I think most people are okay with serving on their terms. But I don't know that most of us, including me, are okay with being a servant. Serving, if we're not careful, is often about control. And being a servant is about surrender. We want to find significance in life. It's about surrendering control and being a servant. In the Doherty House, we are deep in the driver's permit stage of life. Um, it's an adventure. And I, nobody told me this, but you learn a lot about yourself as a human being when you're trying to teach your child to drive. And I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. You're like, wow, I really thought I was a better person than this. I really did. I truly thought I was more kind and gracious and patient. But there's something about being in the passenger seat of an inexperienced driver that just brings out the very worst character traits in us. I don't know if you felt that. I want amen, but I've certainly felt it. I've certainly felt it. Now, uh, here's the thing. She's a great driver. She really is. I mean, we've hit a couple of mailboxes, but overall, just kidding. It's not true. She is a great driver. She's doing wonderfully. She's doing much better than I did at that stage. I have a recollection. I don't know if my dad will remember this, but I have a recollection of my dad saying, you know, I'm going to teach you how to drive. And I may have mentioned this before, but he put a cup of coffee on the dashboard. And he's like, all right, your goal is not to spill that coffee. Within about three seconds, that coffee was all over everywhere, you know. Maybe that wasn't the, the you know. I see what you're doing, Dad, but that did not work. So I haven't, I haven't repeated uh, that uh, technique with my daughter. But you thought you were patient, kind. You thought you were calm and rational. Nope. So this is what's interesting, though. Now, the other day, uh, my 15-year-old gets in the car, and I'm driving. She gets in the passenger seat. And now it's a whole new world. Because once you have tasted control, once you have tasted what it feels like to, to, to steer the car, it is hard to go back to being the passenger. And so now my daughter, who just a few months ago had no problem looking at her phone while I was driving, is now giving me the body language and hitting the brakes and leaning one way. Dad, did you see that car? Dad, hit the brakes. Dad, you know, she's not that bad, but... Similar to that, because I think one of the interesting things about learning to how to drive is learning how to not be in control when somebody else is driving. That's a difficult skill, right? Especially depending on who it is. 
Dad, watch out. Dad, you're taking this turn too fast. Listen, who's the teacher here, right? Who's teaching who? And actually, she's probably doing it better than I am because, anyway. One of the hardest parts of learning to drive is learning to not be in control because being a passenger is a skill. Letting go of control is a skill, and not many of us are good at it. It is tough to let go of control. We want to serve, but we want to serve in our way and do our thing and do, do it on our terms. And Philippians chapter 2 says, Jesus took the very nature of a servant. There, wasn't, there weren't limits. In fact, do you remember there were moments where Jesus was questioning whether or not this was the way that he had to go? Do I have to do this? Is this, is this the only way, God? Is there not some sort of plan B? Can we do not, is there not some alternate route that we can go here? Is this the only way? What if I just stayed alive and I wrote some books? What if I just stayed alive and you know, started a little church? Well, how about that? Wouldn't that be, I would be alive and there'd be influence and I could do all kinds of great things? What about that? But he made himself a servant. Not my will, but yours be done. Significance is serving. And just imagine, like, the impact of Christ on the world through being willing to submit, being willing to surrender to the ultimate. So the first reason I think we struggle with understanding that this is how life works is because we're struggling with understanding our limitations in service. Second reason I want to talk about... um, when my kids were young, they loved the dollar store. It's big fans of the dollar store. And it's because when you go to the dollar store, you feel wealthy, right? You feel like you have riches. You got it four quarters in your pocket, and you can purchase anything in the store. That's buying power, right? Anything. And you can go up and down the aisles deciding, like, what are those quarters going to be spent on? And so my little guy still is a little bit that way. When he gets a dollar, it's like, no, it's time to go to the dollar store. That's what you do when you get a dollar. And so and, you know, we'll take him. I don't tell him about tax because that would break his little heart if he got up there and didn't have the extra seven cents or whatever. So we go to the dollar store. It's a good feeling. And then they buy whatever it is. And that thing, more often than not, 99 times out of 100 is broken before we get home, right? Because dollar store stuff is cheap, but it is also cheap, right? It's very cheap. And maybe that's why they keep customers coming. Let's go back to First Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, this is verse 18. Command them, this is the rich, this is us. Remember, we talked about that last week. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds. If you want to be rich, be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. Jordan's going to wrap us up talking about that next week. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds. What kind of good deeds are we talking about here, Paul? Can I get a list? That would be really handy. So if I could go about my day and I could, okay, don't run red lights, all right, but what if there's nobody there to, to, you know, it's late at night and, you know, don't run red lights, maybe. What about putting the shopping cart back in the cart corral? Maybe, uh, you know, always buy organic, sustainable, free trade, whatever, you know, whatever that is. What are are these good deeds we're talking about? Is it helping old ladies across the street? What is the good deeds? And it's interesting here because, again, here we have, an, uh, we have a little bit of a disconnect between the English and the, and, the, uh, and the original language in this passage. When he talks about good deeds, it's not just this idea of, like, morally good, like you're not running red lights, that sort of thing. There's this quality of um, the word could be translated beautiful and often is. Beautiful deeds. Not just good morally, but beautiful. There's something beautiful about what a person is doing. Be rich in these noble, beautiful deeds. It's the opposite of cheap. It's quality versus quantity. So it's cheap deeds are good, but they're technically good. But cheap deeds are about making me look good. 
Cheap deeds are about, make, about currying favor with somebody else. Cheap deeds are about expecting someone to return the favor. Cheap deeds have strings attached. Cheap deeds are wanting to get noticed and wanting to get attention. Cheap deeds are manipulative. Technically, they're good. They're not bad things to do, but the reason we're doing them is for our own purposes. They're not really beautiful gestures to someone else. They're, they're cheap. That's what he's talking about here. He wants us to do good deeds, to be rich in good deeds. But it's not about the bigness or the smallness of the service. Remember in Matthew chapter 10, verse 42, he says, If anyone gives even, even, I love that, even a cup of cold water to one of, the least of, the, one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you that person will not lose their reward. Even, what's he trying to say? He's like, it doesn't have to be huge acts of service. But I think it's interesting, he says cold water. How hard would it be to get cold water in their day and age? It's a thoughtful gesture. It's kind. It's gracious. It's thinking about that other person. It's beautiful because of what it means. It's the fact that I'm paying attention to you. I'm helping you. I'm serving you in a way that you need to be served, not in the way that I want to serve you, not in the way that gets me attention, in the way that you need it. Let me give you an example. We have, um, we have in our midst a, a person, who I think, who does this very well. And I need to, uh, I need to start telling you about this person by, by telling you about my dad. Um, and, and my dad likes bad coffee. And, and what I mean by that is I have, I've witnessed on more than one occasion, uh, like we go to a place like Pizza Hut, not an establishment known for the quality of their coffee, and he'll order coffee. Now, what happens at a Pizza Hut, I'm guessing, I, I don't know this for sure, is that they opened the store, they made some coffee at 10 a.m., and it has been cooking on that hot plate for about eight hours. And so when my father comes in for dinner, it is, well, it's not great coffee. However, my dad also doesn't like what most of us would consider good coffee. So, for example, he won't go to Starbucks. He calls that stuff sludge. His favorite place in the world, if you're looking for birthday gift ideas, is Dunkin' Donuts. That's his favorite place in the world. Some of you are like, yeah, I get that. Um, but he won't go to Caribou, won't go to Starbucks, doesn't want any of that kind of stuff. I saw him order coffee at a Chinese buffet one time, and I'm just like, there is no way that can be good stuff. That cannot be good stuff. I didn't even know they had a coffee maker. Well, here at church, we like to make coffee for people. Uh, we have a member of our congregation who arrives early, Richard Machinsky, and he, he sets up our, uh, our communion. He fills all those little cups. Did you know somebody had to do that? We don't have a machine. We have a person, a Machinsky, that does that for us. <laughs> he fills up all those little cups. He gets the trays ready. When we're done with them, he takes them out. Uh, that's right. <laughs> He's back there, just, so, just in case we made him. Yeah, that's right. We should give him a big round of applause. <laughs> and, uh, and Rick also makes our coffee. Well, we decided, you know, we want to be quality here, so we go out and we get Starbucks beans. Starbucks beans. Well, that, and now we're running into a problem because I have a relative that is not a fan of Starbucks. And so one day, uh, Rick is in the kitchen where you'll always find him. We, uh, he's our church mascot and barista. We need to make you that official name tag at some point. And he's back there, and my dad goes up to fill up his cup of coffee thing. And me, wanting to just poke lighthearted, respectful fun at my dad, said, Oh, Dad, you don't want to drink that. That's Starbucks. And he's like, Oh, yeah, sludge. I don't, you know, I don't want this. Now, we're not trying to communicate anything to Rick in the back. Rick's just back there, and he's listening, and he's doing his thing. And he's like, Yeah, you know, it's no Dunkin' Donuts, Dad, but maybe you can just, you know, just force it down or whatever, you know. Again, you know, making fun of my dad a little bit. 
Um, and Rick, Rick hears that, and he goes out next week, and guess what kind of coffee he buys? Dunkin' Donuts. And guess what Rick makes every week? When you, go out to the, when you go out here, there's two different containers. There's one that is a metal container that's filled with Starbucks. There's one with a push top. You know what that is in the push top? That is Dunkin' Donuts coffee because Rick Machinsky is interested in doing good deeds. Now, is that huge? Is that amazing? Is that like, you know, no, it's, he's paying attention to what people want and he's trying to serve them in a way that, that is helpful to them. That's a beautiful deed. That's a good deed. That's what, that's what Paul's talking about. Be rich in those good deeds. It means that I am paying attention to you. I am listening to you. I am trying to determine what will make your life better, what will draw you uh, closer to Christ. Those are the types of deeds he's talking about. I love that. I love that about people in our church. If anyone gives a cup of weak Dunkin' Donuts coffee to one of these named John Doherty, truly I tell you that person will not lose their reward. I love that. It's not the size of the gesture. It's saying I see you, I hear you, I serve you. I want you to think about Jesus at the end of his life. It says that he was given all authority and the very next thing he did with that authority that he was given, that power that he was given, was to wash his disciples' feet. Now, is washing the disciples' feet this just this huge act, and it took forever, and it was hard to do, and it was such a... No. Washing his disciples' feet was not a big deal because of what it was. It was a big deal because of who Jesus was. Because Jesus had surrendered to the identity of being a servant, and he was interested in doing good beautiful, noble deeds to serve the people around him. Sometimes our service will be big and grand. Sometimes it will be a cup of cold water. Significance is service. Significance is service. Significance is service. I want us, as we wrap up, I want us to think about what it means to take hold of life that is truly life. How do I make sure that I'm spending, you know, the 70, 80, 90 years that I have here on this earth in a way that matters? How do I know that? How do I ensure that? How do I make sure that I'm meeting the benchmarks that I want to meet as a human being? How do I make sure that I'm helping my family and my loved ones the way that I need to help them? How do I make sure that I matter? How do I make sure that I'm meaningful? Significance is service. It's in being a servant It's in doing good works. It's in being like Christ. Disciples don't just attend, we engage. I've been praying a prayer this week based on the Richard Foster book, uh, Celebration of Disciplines, where he talks about service. And he wraps up that chapter of service by by asking this prayer. The prayer is, um, bring me someone today whom I can serve. Bring me someone today whom I can serve. It's a good prayer. Earlier this week, I was thinking about that. It was an early morning having a cup of coffee, and I started like, I, I'm going to pray that prayer. And so I started to pray that prayer, and then I stopped myself. And I thought, man, if I pray that prayer and God answers it, I got some stuff I want to do today. I got some stuff I want to accomplish today. What if God answers that prayer? Then it's going to change the way my day looks. And then there I am. I'm not stepping into the identity of a servant. I'm not surrendering to service. I'm serving on my own terms. I want to get my stuff done and then bring me someone whom I can conveniently serve. That's not what we're asked to do. That's not where significance comes from. Disciples don't attend. They engage. Significance is service. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, we are grateful to know these uh, simple truths, um, but God, we struggle putting them into practice. I confess for myself, Lord, that I struggle with understanding that what really truly matters in life will come through a surrender to service for others. Lord, help me to be like Christ in this way. Help our church to be like Christ in this way. Help us to not just attend, not just occupy a seat, but to serve one another. Help us to not be uh, demotivated by the fact that it will disrupt our routine. It might disrupt our to-do list. It might disrupt our plans. It might disrupt our convenience. But that that is truly the only path to greatness is through being a servant. Help us to take hold of life that is truly life today through serving others. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.